Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see Sugarland Campus in the house, and good to be with you, those of you watching online today. If you're at home, don't change the channel. You're not watching the Santa channel. Um, I had uh, the privilege of growing a beard this year, and uh, so I have to stop and ask, though, because my wife truly hates the beard. So, ladies, hands up, yes on the beard. You're all going to heaven with your hands up. I love you. I love you. It's just more ammo to be able to go home and say, honey, I, the Sugar Creek Sugar Lane campus believes in my beard. They believe in my beard. Well, it is great to be here. My name is Tim Homa, and I get the awesome privilege to be the campus pastor at our Richmond Rosenberg campus. It has been great to do the Christmas tour. Last week, we were uh, over at Missouri City, which was a lot of fun to be with them, and, and now to be kind of like the homecoming here with you all, where I have cut my teeth over the years and been able to be a part of this beautiful platform that Pastor Mark gives me the privilege and honor to be able to be here to present the message this morning. We are in the best time of the year, amen? And it is the Christmas season. So how many of you began decorating before Thanksgiving? Let's be honest. More heaven followers, I love you, that's awesome. How many of you have yet to begin your decorating? <laughs> the camera guy, the camera guy just raised his hand. I have a counselor for all of you that have yet to start. You're too busy, you are too busy. But the great thing about this time of the year are traditions, right? I love traditions. I love doing things that uh, bring back memories of Christmases of old. And one of those things has to do with storytelling. We have this collection of books that we used to read to our kids when our daughters were a lot younger. And this is the, was the night before Christmas. There's one with the 12 days of Christmas. Uh, we always have read Luke chapter two, the story of Jesus's birth in story form to them. We love stories. And in the midst of this season, we are in a series called The Unlikely Characters of Christmas. And so today, I'm going to read a Christmas story to you. Now, this is the greatest story ever told. It's the greatest true story of all mankind. Now, it has a motley crew of characters, if you think about it. I mean, we have a teenager who is God's vessel to bring into the world the Savior. We have the shepherds who were, at that time, the lowest economic group in the world, and yet they got to experience the greatest angelic choir in history. And then there are some wise men who decide to follow a star from the Far East, moving toward that star with an unknown destination in mind, but they're gonna follow it nonetheless. Well, you got to hear last week, you got to hear about the shepherds, correct? From Pastor Clint and, and Pastor Mark gets to talk about the wise men. I drew the short straw. I get to talk about Herod. <laughs> he's exciting, isn't it, Herod? Yeah, he's a part of the Christmas story. Yay, team, let's go. Good job, Tim, you get Herod. But the greatest story ever told does have a villain. Herod is that villain. Darth Vader is a villain in Star Wars. Thanos, a villain in The Avengers. The Joker is the villain to Batman, and we have villains abound. But the villain in this story is frightening. He's a monster. He's terrible. He is a legit villain. 
And this is why he's not included in many of our Christmas stories. You don't see a little figurine of Herod at the nativity scene, okay? No fat little bald guy in the background by the donkey. Well, that's maybe where he needs to be, but he's not there, okay? But he's part of the Christmas story. Now, I don't like this part of the Christmas story, and you probably won't like this part of the Christmas story either. We would rather hear the, you know, about the shepherds and the angels and little baby Jesus. We like the sanitized version of Christmas. However, the Bible always tells us the true story. It informs us that there is a villain who is trying to stop Christmas. He opposes Christmas. And unless we go back to Bethlehem, at this time, at this event, and look at it, we will miss in an important part of the Christmas story. We ignore the reality of the world that Jesus came into. Herod was the original Grinch who tried to stop Christmas. Okay, so who, who exactly was Herod? Well, there were many Herods in that day. Herod simply means king. And this Herod in this story is called Herod the Great or King Herod. He was a builder. He was a constructor of impressive water systems. He loved um, architecture. He built some water ducts around the temple. He helped to rebuild Solomon's temple. He was very good at that kind of stuff. And even today, there are remnants of his building that still exist. Herod's architectural achievements are pretty much his only redeeming trait. Herod was notorious for a lavish lifestyle. He lived big, high in the hog. He was known for his pagan ways. He set up shrines and uh, idols to all the, and everybody's gods. He had been the king of Judah for 40 years before Jesus was born. For Rome, he was the guy that took care of the money and presented it to Rome. That's all they cared about. Pretty much, Judea needed to live with the fact that she was under the control of an occupying army. That was his job. But above everything else, Herod was infamous for his murderous impulses. He lived with this overriding fear that someone was gonna take over the throne, that they were gonna come in and overthrow him. And at this point in history, he's already killed his wife, his three biological sons, his mother-in-law, his father-in-law, his uncle, and many others besides. In addition, Herod killed the final members of the Hasmonean family and had many of the members of the Sanhedrin executed. Caesar Augustus once said it would be safer to be Herod's pig than it would be Herod's son. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us just how despicable Herod was that when he was dying, he arrested the elite citizens of Jerusalem in order that they would be executed at the moment of his death so that someone would be weeping when he died. Herod was worse than any comic book villain. But Herod would learn an important lesson. It is futile to try to thwart God's plan. This morning, if you have your Bible with you, or your Bible app on your phone, if you wouldn't mind opening to Matthew chapter 2, it's part of the Christmas story, and we're going to look at it this morning before I, I read the story of Herod. Picking up in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says this, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. 
So one day, wise men come to Jerusalem looking, hey, where is this king of the Jews that we hear about? We've been following the star. Uh, where is he at? We want to see him. It's striking that the text mentions that not only is Herod disturbed, but all of Jerusalem are. You would think they would have experiencing joy knowing that a liberating king had been born. But that's not the case because people prefer misery of what they know instead of misery of what they don't know. It doesn't make sense, but it's human nature. Just because you know you're addicted to how things are doesn't mean you want to be delivered. And that's exactly why the arrival of Christ as king is so necessary. The story continues in verse four. It says, so he, Herod, assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He went to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. Now I'd like to share with you the story, the Christmas story of Herod. Herod was upset by the news of the new king showing up in Judea. How dare he? When Herod heard the news, his face grew red, a vein bulged in his forehead, and his blood pressure shot up 50 points. He took some deep breaths, composed himself, and called for the priests. He asked them, do you know anything about this? Where this king, this Christ, supposed to be born? The priests put their heads together for their impromptu sidebar, quiet chatter, and finally the nodding of heads. Yes, your eminence, we think we do, they responded. The prophet Micah predicted that this king would be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, huh? Herod played and scratched with his chin. One could almost see the wheels turning in his head and a light come on. Herod dismissed the priests. He secretly summoned the Magi back. Herod said to them, I've here you've come to our fair little country to find and worship the king of the Jews. How lovely. I do hope you're enjoying your stay. I think that maybe I can help shorten your search. Our prophecies say that the king for whom you search is to be born in Bethlehem, a dirty little town just a few miles south of here. Hey, I've got a great idea. Why don't you gentlemen go on to Bethlehem? Find this new king, then come back and tell me where he is so I can go and worship him too. The Magi, so-called wise men, smiled and nodded in agreement. Weird, right? They spent their time in Herod's presence and never smelled a skunk. They thanked Herod for his help and went on their merry way. When the Magi left Herod's quarters, Herod swirled the whiskey in his goblet and said to himself, worship him? Ah, yes, I'll worship him. I'll worship him with the sharp edge of a sword. This, there is only one king in Judea, and that king is me. And he took his goblet and toasted to himself. Herod said, long live me. It wasn't long until the Magi arrived in Bethlehem and found the Christ child in a little home. They worshiped him, offering gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It's been a good day, said one Magi to the others. Our long search has been rewarded. Rest well, my brothers. Coming morning, come morning, we must get up early to go to Jerusalem to tell King Herod where to find the child. But the Magi didn't rest well. God interrupted their sleep with a dream, a warning not to return to Herod. 
And they weren't the only ones in Bethlehem disturbed by a dream. Joseph, the man God chose to be the earthly father for Jesus, also was disturbed by a dream. An angel appeared to him with this warning, get up now, grab the child and his mother and head to Egypt. Stay there until the coast is clear. Herod is about to come looking for Jesus to murder him. So, Jesus, so Joseph got up, woke Mary, told her to grab the baby and threw a few things in a knapsack and hit the trail for Egypt in the middle of the night. There's an important truth we need to see in the beginning of our story. All villains are a shadow of our ancient enemy from the garden. At the heart of the incarnation, the story of God leaving heaven to become flesh is this cosmic struggle between God and Satan. Because every single day in our lives, there is a villain trying to fight for the throne of our heart. And it began long ago. Ever since Lucifer, God's angel and the leader of the chorus of heaven, fell from glory, he and his band of demons have had one singular mission, to oppose God. And that's why the Christmas story doesn't really begin in 5 BC or in the book of Luke or in the book of Matthew, but it started long ago, centuries before, in a garden. And every villain ever since has been a shadow of Satan. All right, back to our story. The angel was right. Herod, the Christmas villain, wanted Jesus dead. Herod was such a murderous tyrant. He was antsy, and he hadn't slept a wink since he heard the news of the new king. His eyes were bloodshot with weariness and underlined with deep, dark circles. In his sleeplessness, Herod was more cranky than usual. And within a couple of, a day, couple of days, he had assumed his plan had gone awry. He pounded his fists on the throne. He said, those magi must have double-crossed me. Who knows where they are? I know where the baby king is, and he is going to die right now. Herod would stand for no rival to his throne. So did the king, what he often do. He set up one order, murder. He called the head of his secret police and said, trying to find the right king among so many, or the right kid among so many, will be, look, will be like looking for a needle in a haystack. Besides that, we'll tip our hand. The kid's parents may get word of what we're up to and make a run for it. Based on what the Magi told him about the timing of the star's appearance, Herod made his calculations and gave his orders to the secret police. The child should be at least one year old, so just to be safe, kill every baby born you see that is two years and younger. Herod said, just kill them all, and surely we'll murder this baby king in the process. Herod gave the order with a cold detachment that would make a normal person's skin crawl. Listen to what it says in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. It says, then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under. And in keeping with the time, he had learned from the wise men. His secret police didn't flinch upon hearing their orders. It was just another day in the office. They sharpened their swords and dressed in their armor. Mount up, shouted the captain. And they were off on a gallop down the mountain to Bethlehem, moonlight casting eerie shadows of horse and rider all the way to their massacre. Meanwhile, in Bethlehem, little boys were playing in their homes. Herod's men barged into homes, flashing the sword, and the blood of the innocent splattered everywhere. Based on population estimates, historians conclude that anywhere from 30 to 60 boys and probably a few moms and dads who tried to stop the massacre were murdered in Bethlehem that night. 
When Herod's police came back with the news that the mission was accomplished, Herod nodded. He grinned, enjoyed a steak, drank a bottle of Cabernet, and went to bed and slept like a baby. But there was no sleeping in Bethlehem that night. There were just gallons of tears, inconsolable grief, and mothers weeping for their children, refusing to be comforted. As the prophet Jeremiah said and predicted so many centuries earlier, it says in Matthew chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. This is a Christmas story? It is. Matthew tucks it right in the story of Jesus' birth. It's a troubling story, isn't it? If you think about it, why would God sit on his hands and allow all of this atrocity to take place? I mean, he had warned Joseph. Would it have been so hard for him to warn the dads in Bethlehem as well? The story is troubling, and yet it is a Christmas story, and it's even a gospel story. And you can get frustrated looking for the good news in this sad story, but it's there. God sent his only son to be born into a world like this, a world where kings abuse power, people are victimized, children are murdered, a world where children suffer and people and parents weep for them, a world where Satan has a foothold and where evil appears to win as many battles as it loses and sometimes even more. And this is what people cynically call the real world. See, Christmas happened in the real world. It happened in our world. Christmas reminds us that Jesus came into our evil and broken world to what? Save us. And if you can see past the blood, and if you can see past the violence, there is good news. In the baby Jesus, God entered the world. This corrupt evil, unjust, devil-serving, sin-loving, war-mongering, baby-killing world, God entered this world. He didn't wait until it was safe. He didn't make it easier for Jesus than he would have made for anyone else. God didn't send Jesus to a rich family and have him grow up in a lap of luxury. He didn't place him under the protection of a friendly government and have him being born in a state-of-art, state-of-the-art hospital. Jesus entered this world the real world, our world, just as it is with all of its intending evil and dangers. And before the Son of God could say one controversial word or do one eye-raising surprise miracle, the powers that be tried to snuff him out. But God entered this world. God came to this world not with a sword in his hand, but with a cross on his back. He came not to destroy the broken, sinful world, but to redeem it. Yes, Jesus got a pass on that wicked, bloody night in Bethlehem. God warned Joseph in a dream to get Mary and the baby out of there. Jesus escaped the slaughter in Bethlehem, yes, because you know why? It wasn't his time yet. He still had a mission. Jesus' time would come 30 years later. And it would happen on a hill in Jerusalem after being flogged like the living daylights out of him by another ruler. There was no sword for Jesus, only a nail and spear. And in the Bethlehem massacre, Herod thought he had gotten the best of Jesus. He hadn't. 
In the Jerusalem crucifixion, the powers that killed Jesus thought they had gotten the best of Jesus. They had not. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus came to redeem the world, and he redeemed the world through a cross, and he sealed that redemption with the resurrection. That was God's plan. The cross and the resurrection and the promise of Jesus' return remind us that evil doesn't get the last word. God gets the final word. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And even though we live in a world where evil abounds, tyrants abuse their power, people murder children, innocent people suffer of all manners of kind, we can live in the peace of God because we know that how the story ends. And because we know that the sto- until that story ends, God is with us, Emmanuel. He's with us today. He's with us in laughter and in sadness. He's with us in celebration and in suffering. He's with us all the way to the end of the story, and this is the end of the story. Jesus wins. Herod loses. Justice prevails. Evil is vanquished. Light, God's light, extinguishes darkness forever. Christmas also reminds us that we must choose who will be our king. Because every one of us in here has a little bit of Herod's heart. Not that we're going to go out and we want to murder the Christ, but we want the throne to ourselves, the throne of our life. So many of us want to negotiate that throne with God from time to time. One thing about Herod, though, even though he was paranoid, even though he was full of malice, he was terrible, he got it. He knew that he couldn't share the throne, and so he did everything he could to get rid of the threat. For many of us, we do the same thing in our life. We have villains trying to fight for the throne of our heart on a daily basis. Sometimes we are our own villains. We try to remove God when God makes it uncomfortable for us or leads us in a direction we may not want to go. And so we negotiate. To be honest, I have a little bit of Herod in my heart. I'm a negotiator. God, I will put you on the throne in my heart and I'll let you lead until I get uncomfortable, until you tell me to do things that I don't want to do and follow ways that I don't feel comfortable or, or want me to act in ways that I don't love acting in those ways. I would rather respond this way and you want me to respond that way. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna ask you to remove yourself from my throne so I can take over my throne. Here's the truth about this book that whenever I have put God in the throne of my life, the center of my life, and I've allowed him to control and lead and lovingly guide my life, and I read it throughout this book, never once has he made a mistake. Never once has he forgotten me. Never once has he abandoned me. Never once has he steered me in a direction that harmed me or hurt me. Never once has he put me on a path that I didn't want, that was not filled with blessings and opportunities. Never once have I found any mistake in this book. And that's this season. Jesus is the reason for the season, but he's also the reason for every season. And when we allow him, his rightful place in our lives at the throne, we can be assured that our life will be an adventure. It won't always be easy, but God will never leave that throne He will stay committed to us, faithful to us, loyal to us, lovingly toward us, merciful toward us, and guide us 
on that way. So maybe this Christmas is a season that you forfeit the throne, that you stop trying to be Herod and fight for the throne and humbly step away and say, Jesus, I can't continue to live this life with me in control because I've messed it up. I have messed it up so many times when I have done it myself. And knowing that God will not mess it up, I'm gonna put him back on the throne. Maybe this is the season that you do that. You're reminded of who Jesus is, the king of the world, son of man, who came down for you and I. Now maybe this morning you are in need to talk to somebody about that. Maybe it's been a struggle. Maybe it's a time in your life that you have come to a point where you said, I need someone to pray for me. I need to talk to somebody about this. If you're watching online this morning, as soon as we finish here, you'll be able to go to our Next Step Center online and talk to somebody right there from your computer. For those of us here, we have a Next Step Center. You all know, right to my right and your left as you leave this morning. There are some wonderful people there. Would love to meet with you. Maybe you want to make a first-time decision. You're like, I want this Jesus in my life. I want this loving father, son who came down to this earth for me. I want his son in my life. And they would love to meet with you and pray with you and talk to you what that means. For any next step you want to take in your journey, we have people here who would love to pray with you and meet with you. Can we pray? God, we thank you for today. We thank you, Lord, that when you are on the throne of our lives, our life is where it needs to be. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. We know that, Lord. We know that life ha- comes with struggles and difficulties and heartache and, and some grief. But yet, Lord, your word says that you never forsake us. You never abandon us. You'll always be with us. So if that's the case, why wouldn't we want you on the throne of our life? So, Lord, we step away from the throne. We will trust you, no matter how uncomfortable it gets, no matter how out of the box it gets. God, we want to follow you. So to this morning, we commit to you our life. We commit to you our throne. You're with us, Emmanuel. We thank you for this season. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.